Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. We start with Western Conference playoff action. Last night, the Warriors rolled into Staples and they took a cue ball in a sock to the Clippers and they put that series in a rare naked hold. Rear naked hold, I should say. I'm not worried about that game two meltdown where they had a 31-point lead and it got away from them. I was not worried about that then. And I'm sure it's all not worried now that they've got three chances to close out an eight seed. No disrespect to the Clippers. I mean, they're not your typical just happy to be here eight. They're gritty as hell. And they have punched out of their weight class all season long. But their road ends right here. And whatever's left in that series is nothing more than a mere formality. And not that anybody was sweating it, but through the first three games of that series, Clay Thompson had not exactly been Clay Thompson. Not terrible. In fact, far from it. 12 points in game one, 17 in game two, 12 in game three. Again, not horrible, but not what he was used to. So, what do you do if you're Clay Thompson and you're not having the production that you normally have? Maybe get up a few more shots, maybe watch a little more film, maybe spend a little more time warming up. Nope. You go play beach volleyball, and then you jump into the ocean. Whenever you feel like you have a bad game, I know you kind of try to, you know, do something to get yourself going. Did you do anything the past couple days to get yourself going tonight? Oh, man. I did a couple things. I didn't think I had bad games, but I didn't have any big games. I told Jonas yesterday, we went to the beach, played some volleyball. I'm like, yo, I'm just going to go jump in the ocean. I just know that will reset my mind, and it worked. So I don't know if I'm going to jump up north because it's freezing, but something I'll definitely contemplate if I don't shoot the ball that well the rest of the year. But hopefully that doesn't happen. This dude, he is awesome. Nothing like a salt water bath in the Pacific to get you going. And it worked. I mean, you got to love a guy who allegedly couldn't hit the ocean. The first three games, just straight jumping into it and coming back out of it as himself all over again. You got to love that, unless you're the Clippers, because that dude just used your backyard pool to get right. And then right about now, Laker fan is twisting that message and interpreting it as a sign that Clay is in fact coming home, that Clay is going to come to LA next year. You know, because L.A. has beaches that you can swim in in April, and Frisco doesn't. And if Clay is finding his center, resetting his mind and his body and his soul, and he's able to do so just off the Santa Monica Pier, it must mean that he's coming to the Lakers next season. Right, Laker fan? I mean, believe this. Nobody connects the imaginary dots like Laker fan. And that's exactly what they're doing right now. Because he's coming home. Right, Laker fan? Yeah, just like Paul George was a lock to come home and ball out for the Lakers. Hey, listen, I'm not here to wreck your buzz, Laker fan. You tell yourself anything long enough, and it becomes true. Take Orenthal. He literally convinced himself that he never killed anybody. Hypothetical. But to me, the best part of the whole story is when Clay comes back to the team hotel after going for a dunk, and then Steph Curry takes one look at him and just knew that Clay was going to go off. The Pacific Ocean is undefeated. Yeah, I think he got his, got his feet wet yesterday. Walked in the hotel with a, with a wet T-shirt, with the shades on, and typical Clay type of vibe. I just had a smile on my face when I saw him because I knew, I knew what that meant. 
it's nice for him to you know show out like he did. And we needed every every bit of it for sure. So good. Steph said the Pacific Ocean is undefeated. So add that to the list. Sex, father time, and the Pacific Ocean. The three undisputed, untied, undefeated heavyweight champions of the history of the world. And if you don't believe Steph, take the word from an entire, entirely greater authority. Bodie from Point Break. Nobody can speak to the power of the Pacific more than Bodie. Everything moves in cycles. So twice a century, the ocean lets us know just how small we really are. A winter storm comes out of Antarctica tearing up the Pacific, and it sends a huge swell north 2,000 miles. And when it hits Bell's Beach, it'll turn into the biggest surf this planet has ever seen, and I will be there. If you want the ultimate, you got to be willing to pay the ultimate price. It's not tragic to die doing what you love. Hell no. Hope you're watching on CBS Sports Network and you saw that perfect graphic we put up. Yeah, Bodie didn't make it. You know why? Because the Pacific Ocean is undefeated. Bodie got his ass kicked by the Pacific Ocean. Clay knew better than to try to give the Pacific Ocean the hands. No, he respectfully harnessed its power. And then he unleashed its rage on the Clippers. And now the Dubs head back to Oracle for a closeout game. Well, one more thing about the Warriors, in case you need a reminder. Yes, Clay was on fire, but he wasn't even their leading scorer. He had 32, Kevin Durant had 33. That's what you're talking about when you're talking about the Warriors. A guy can break out for 32 and be the focus of the game, but there's another Hall of Famer and legend who had even more points. So if you're going to beat them, you have to play your best game and hope that a number of them play their worst games. And if Clay Thompson is anywhere near an ocean, a lake, a pond, even a large puddle, any body of water, look the hell out because you're not going to beat these guys. My guest is Dwayne Haskins. Dwayne, great to have you on. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Good, good. Listen, I've been talking to as many draft prospects as I can before the draft, and I kind of start them off the same way. You're a few days out from the draft. What has the entire process been like for you, and how eager are you to find out where you're going to live and where you're going to work? Very eager to find out where I'm going to be and where I'm going to be able to play football at. And, you know, it's been a long process, but at the end of the day, it's a, it's a blessing. And I'm just looking forward to getting this over with. <laughs> I, I, don't, I see it working. All right, so if we go back a little bit, there's this famous video of you from 11 years ago, and you're walking around Ohio State saying, I'm going to go to college here. Now, a lot of young kids say things like that, but they don't have the chance to follow through. What do you think now when you see that video and the fact that you actually made it a reality? It's crazy, um, you know. The uh, best thing I can do is just say things and put them into existence, and you know, put the work in to go do it. And you know, uh, this biggest thing for me was, uh, you know, making sure that I did everything I possibly could to, to at least try to, to live the dream. And uh, that was to play quarterback at Ohio State. And whether that was me getting uh, a scholarship or even having an opportunity to start, it was just a blessing to be able to, to attend that university. Dwayne Haskins joining us. Now, it's one thing to say you're going to go there, but you actually made a huge impact on the school as well. Now, if you go back a little bit, when you were being recruited, the thinking was maybe you go to Maryland, and then Randy Edsel was fired. The story goes, and correct me if I'm wrong, you actually texted Urban Meyer about visiting, and his response was, who is this? Is that how that went down? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I told Urban I wanted to visit the school, and uh, uh, he was like, wait, who is this? And uh, we have a thing, I say seven, and that's what he calls me. So I texted him back, and I said seven. He's like, well, yes, let's get this set up. Text Pantone, and I got the visit set up where I can go visit uh, visit campus for my official visit. So uh, that's that's how that got started. 
All right, so this thing was not easy now. You had to wait. You had to learn. In fact, what was it like when you first got on campus? Was it what you thought it would be? What was that process like? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a lot of fun, uh, definitely, uh, being able to be with my classmates and being able to, to experience college for the first time, going to class, living in the dorms. and uh, it, was a lot, it was a grateful experience, something I'll never forget, and uh, I had a ball. We're talking to Dwayne Haskins, getting ready for the NFL draft. So you get your shot this season, and then all you do in your first year as a starter is break one school record after another, one conference record after another. So what's it like when you see that you're breaking Big Ten passing records set by guys like Drew Brees? It's crazy. Uh, those those records have been standing for 20 years now. So for me, the biggest thing was uh, just take one game at a time and uh, just keep playing the best football that I can and prepare the best that I could for each team. And uh, to see those records fall down the way they did was just a testament to how much work I put in in the offseason getting ready for that first year starting. Yeah, and it, it, and it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun to be able to go do that. Dwayne Haskins, my guest. Excuse me. I was going to say, you put the time in and you're prepared. However, it's you never really know exactly what it's going to be like when you're under that microscope and you have that kind of scrutiny. You did all of that in your first year as a starter, but you handled that like a pro. Given all the attention and all the scrutiny that was placed on you, it looked like it didn't bother you at all. How were you able to deal with all of that so well? You know, uh, you know, I mean, football is at the end of the, end of the day is just, just, <clears throat> just a game. So, for me to be able to to just realize that I'm playing this sport because I love it, and it's bigger than just a win or a loss, or uh, for for me to throw a touchdown or, or interception, and that I had to have fun with it most importantly. So, uh, you know, of course, having all the conversation to be the quarterback at Ohio State and all the all the rhetoric that came with that story, and uh, just just trying to find, have fun fun with it at the end of the day. So that's what I did. And uh, it was a great, great experience for me. And it didn't bother me at all to be under the microscope the way it was because I just wanted to set a great example for people that were they're watching me. It takes more than hard work to make it to the pros. It takes smarts as well. You know, the kind of smarts that can read a defense and pick it apart. Well, hiring is no different. You need smarts to find the right people, but you don't need to spend years honing your game. You simply need ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to find the right people with the right experience and then invites them to apply for your job. Try ZipRecruiter for free right now at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash clones. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash C-L-O-N-E-S. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Dwayne Haskins is my guest. He's getting ready for the NFL draft and working with Old Spice, which I'll get to in a minute. Now, at the Combine, you said, quote, Dwayne, I knew before the season I had the talent to play in the NFL. I know I'm a franchise quarterback, end quote. I respect the attitude a lot. So what is it that you've seen and experienced that lets you know that you are, in fact, a franchise quarterback? Uh, just being able to be around NFL guys, uh, you know, uh, training with Muhammad Sanu, plays for the Falcons, and you know, throwing with guys like Deshaun Watson and um, Josh Dobbs and guys like that. And uh, I knew that I was capable of uh, playing the NFL because the guys that I, were, I was working out with, uh, I felt like I can compete with them and, and be uh, the same, be just as good if not better as those guys I was, was working out with. So biggest thing for me was just doing what I could do on the field and, and showcasing my talent, the best of my abilities to, to – to make sure that I had the opportunity to go play in the NFL. And, you know, crazy enough, I broke a whole bunch of records and did what I was, what I said I was going to do the whole time. And, you know, it was just crazy, crazy uh, thing for me to be able to just be in this position to, to even be a draft pick. Yeah, see, there's what you do on the field, then there's what you do off the field. Watching you break down film is actually really impressive. When did you first start breaking down film? And then how valuable is that in making you who you are right now? I've been breaking down film since I was, 
about 10 years old, and uh, that's something that I enjoy. That's something that I have pride in from knowing coverages to knowing protections to knowing how to uh, read defenses. And uh, this is something that you, has to be, you have to be great at to be successful in the NFL, especially at quarterback. And uh, if you don't know what you're looking at, you're going to look pretty foolish. And uh, I make sure that uh, I'm prepared for everything that I can see out there on the field. So I do I do a lot of studying of uh, the guys I'm playing. I do a lot of film study of the type of caliber of athletes that I'll be facing. And uh, this, you know, making sure that I prepare for anything that I can see out there on the field. We're talking to Dwayne Haskins for a few more moments. You mentioned the NFL guys you're working out with right now, but Ohio State legend Sean Springs, who played in the league, has also played a pretty big role in your life. How did the two of you first meet, and then what was that like? Yeah, I met Sean at a football camp. And this what happens that his son was there at a football camp, and uh, it was just crazy to me that I got to meet Sean. I knew Sean, not personally, but just off of Madden and things like that. And, uh, you know, the biggest thing for me was just uh, to be able to pick his brain. It's like I do everybody else. And um, it was fun for me to be able to, to meet him. And uh, he's been a, done a great job being my mentor over the years and uh, getting getting to know him and what it took to, for him to be a successful NFL football player. And asking him how guys like uh, how uh, Tom Brady were because he played with him. And uh, it, was, it was cool just to be able to have him in my corner. Hmm. So you had a great tweet last week. The tweet read simply, don't overthink it. Trust me, end quote. What's the message that you wanted people to take from that, and who was that directed towards? Uh, just whoever has second doubts or second guesses my ability or what I can do on the field and things of that nature. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you have to go with your gut. And uh, my gut is that I know I'm going to be a great, successful NFL quarterback, and it takes a lot for me to be able to do that. But I've been winning at every level of that uh, I played at, and I know that I have a lot of work to do. But, you know, the great thing about me is that I know that I want to work. I know that I want to be better. I know that I have a lot of stuff to, to get better at. And uh, the biggest thing is I'm just going to – I just need somebody to just give me opportunity and uh, that I'll give him the best shot that I have in a lot, a lot of football games and, you know, just to trust it. Dwayne Haskins, my guest. And then you're not going to be in Nashville for the draft, but you are going to have a draft party. So what was the thinking behind that? And how eager are you or how much are you looking forward to that party? Looking forward to it. I'm going to be home with my family and get to spend time with them and, you know, the biggest thing is just uh, enjoying that time because you only get drafted once. So looking forward to the opportunity, spending time with people that I love, people that have been with me throughout this process, and that's going to be a great night. I understand that it can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or you're running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you might feel a bit tempted to try to sneak across the tracks. I see it all the time. Don't do it. Don't be that person ever because trains are going a lot faster than you expect them to be and they cannot stop. Even if the engineer hits the brakes right away, it can still take a train over a mile to stop. And by that time, what used to be your car is now just a crushed hunk of metal and what used to be you, well, let's not think about that. The point is this, you cannot know how quickly the train is going to arrive. The train can't stop, even if it does see you. The result is a disaster. So if the signals are on, the train is on its way. And you, you need to remember just one thing, stop, because trains can't. But it was on this day in 2004 that we lost Pat Tillman. And when I say that I've thought about this a lot since then, what I've thought about is the following. I remember what I was thinking and how I was feeling when I saw that first news report that Pat Tillman had been killed in combat. And I remember thinking that that didn't even happen. I, I'm like, I was shocked. I would have never, ever been shocked 
about hearing that somebody did not come home from combat. It's combat. It's war. But for some reason, I was with Pat Tillman. That's how highly I thought of him back then. You have to understand that at that time, Pat Tillman was larger than life. And again, pretty naive on my part. I understand this. But he really was larger than life. It never dawned on me for whatever reason. And the reason being, I'd followed him and spoke with him. Didn't really know him like that. But when you look at the way he lived his life and you look at the way he carried himself and the decisions he made, the choices he made, the fact that he left a multi-million dollar contract on the table to defend his nation, he just seemed larger than life. It seemed inevitable. He was going to come back. He would come home. And although he never talked about that decision publicly, I was always hopeful that one day he would. One day he'd come back on the program. One day we'd talk about these things. But it never dawned on me that he wouldn't come back. So I remember taking to air and getting behind the mic, and I was just shocked that Pat Tillman had been killed. And then you find out how he'd been killed. The initial reports, the subsequent reports, and then on and on. I've also been on record as saying that being asked by the Tillman family to speak at his memorial was one of the biggest honors of my entire career, if not the biggest honor of my entire career. I'll never forget that day. And I really did think that he would come back. It never dawned on me that he wouldn't. So based on what? We had conversations. I remember when I spoke to Pat Tillman for the first time as a college football player, and I was just blown away by him. I'd never spoken to a college player who had that kind of it, that kind of charisma, that kind of personality. And because he went to ASU, we talked about the great matchup and rivalry between Arizona State and Arizona. This is an interview that I did with Pat Tillman back in 1996, December of 96, when he was on this show. Compare the win over Nebraska. I mean, they're number one. They come in, and they ran it up on you guys last year. You shut mm-hmm. them down in your own crib. Compare how it felt after that game to after beating Arizona. Uh, you know what? After the Nebraska game, that was a huge win, but... The, the Arizona game was more it was kind of more satisfying because they kicked the hell out of us the last like three years so it, it kind of it meant a little bit more and I think for the fans it meant more too I mean most people were so damn surprised after the Nebraska game they were too too surprised to really you know it didn't really sink in but the Arizona game was just a nice swift ass kicking so it was cool it's long been one of my favorite quotes ever from an athlete during an interview the Arizona game was a nice swift ass-kicking, so it was cool. Whenever I think about Pat Tillman, that's not the first thing that comes to mind, but it's one of the first things that come to mind. Pat used to talk about, in order to be interesting, be interested. But Pat would do lots of interesting things. Hey, Pat, man, don't, don't even tell me you rock climb. I know you've never been rock climbing. Where did that come from? <laughs> no, no, I just try to be interesting, man. I filled that out when I was a freshman, so I wanted to, people to think, you know, here comes a guy, he's got a lot of things going on. No, I'm just a bum. I just write things in. I'm just a bum. I just write things in. Like, you filled that out for a story. And remember, when you, when you want to say something about that, those interview clips, remember, they were more than 20 years ago. That was 1996. And then we talked about the possibility of winning a national championship. Was it national championship or bust? Or did you not need to win it all? To have a great year. All right, so, Pat, what about you going to the Rose Bowl, and you like to think that if you're unbeaten and you take care of business, you control your own destiny. But the fact is you don't. I mean, your destiny actually is controlled by, like I said, a bunch of fat newspaper guys who may or may not ever see you guys play. Do you have a yeah. problem with that? Um, I, yeah, you know what? In a way, I do. In a way, I don't. I mean, if we win this game, we go undefeated, and that's, that's all we could possibly do. And I think everybody appreciates that. 
if we didn't get the national championship, you know, Florida wins or Florida State wins, obviously, you know, they got it. So that's cool. They deserve it too. They didn't lose. But at the same time, it'll be disappointing. But there is a satisfaction in kind of knowing that, you know, you deserved it. And I mean, number two is no slap in the face. So I'll be disappointed, but I'll get over it. These are interview clips from Pat Tillman in December of 1996. It's been 15 years. It's the 15-year anniversary of him passing away and dying in combat. God, God, it always gives me chills to hear that conversation, to hear him, to know that he'd come on the show and talked about football and life. And speaking of life, he was looking ahead to graduation. I was curious, somebody who saw things so differently, who thought about life so differently, even at that age, I was really curious what Pat was thinking about post-graduation. What are you going to do when you graduate? I have no idea. I'll figure it out. I don't know. I'm leaving the door open. I was going to say, people need to understand that you ran some pretty good smack, but you're a second-team academic All-American. What's your GPA? I was first-team academic. You were first-team. I was second-team football. So you're like 3.8. Something like that. Phenomenal, man. I'm going to get you a talk show, all right? Cool. I love when he said, I was first-team, bro. Second-team football. It said so much about Pat Tillman, too. You could tell. He wanted to make sure that we knew that he was first-team all-academic, second-team football. So that's just me talking to Pat. What about those who knew him? What about those who played with him? Over the years, I've interviewed people that have spent time around him. Had a conversation in 2004 with Rob Moore, who was a teammate of Pat's with the Cardinals. I asked him his thoughts about Pat Tillman as a player and as a person. But he showed a different courage altogether to do what he did. Can you talk about that? Well, I think any time when you talk about Pat Tillman, you're not talking about a guy who, who ran a, a 4-3-40 and could you know, jump out the building and was super strong and all these things. Pat's edge has always been his mental toughness, has always been his courage, you know, and has always been his style of play, You're just being reckless. That's always been his edge. And I think that's the thing that you know anyone who in a, in the league who's played against him will tell you. You know, um, you know when you come across the middle, you better be ready. You better have your chin strap buckle because he's coming to get you. Rob. And I think you know anytime you, you when you play against players like that, you have to have respect because that's a part of the field that if you don't control the middle and have someone back there who who demands that respect, it's going to be a long day for your corners. Rob Moore talking about Pat Tillman that if you're coming over the middle, you better have your chin strap buckled. I talked, in fact, frequently back in the day with Pat's coach, Bruce Snyder. He was the head coach at Arizona State. He shared his thoughts on Pat and Pat acting on his beliefs. You said yourself, you learned more from him than he did from you. I'm not sure I've ever heard a coach say that. Well, uh, it, it, it is true in my case where uh, I think that the lessons, the, his legacy to me anyway, would be that if you have an idea, if you have a belief, if you have whatever it is that makes sense to you, go do it. Act upon those things that you know you should do and are responsible to do. Pat would do that. That's well, you know him. I mean, you two guys, I thought did a great job of uh, interacting, and uh, and I think you had an appreciation for him, and I know he did for you. He was a guy that was intellectual, but intellectual in a sense that. It was only worthwhile to be intellectual if you did something. And uh, he, he, uh, he certainly acted on his patriotism for the United States and putting his uh, neck on the line, which he, I think he used the word butt or ass or something else. But uh, that's what he wanted to do, and he did it. That's amazing. Bruce Snyder, who was his coach, said he learned more from Pat than Pat did from him. Chris Collinsworth came on this show in 2009 
and made the point that Pat Tillman absolutely should be in the Hall of Fame. There are certain special people that I think belong in Pro Football's Hall of Fame. And to me, you could take all the great football players, and I get the argument back the other way, well, then we've got to take O.J. Simpson out of the Hall of Fame if it has to do with character and all those kinds of issues. No, you don't. I mean, you can get in being a great football player. You can get in being a great owner. You can be get in being a great commissioner. So why is it that we exclude somebody who's done something so great that represents all of us in the National Football League in such a special way? I mean, here is a guy. You know, I know there were guys in World War II that left to go fight in the war, and I certainly appreciate them too, but this is a different day and age. This is a day and age now when you have – millions of dollars sitting on the table. He could be set up for life. He could be living in his beach home when he finally gets finished with his career. And instead, he gave up all of that because it was very likely that something could have happened where he could have never come back and played. He gave up all of that, that cushy life for the rest of his life, leaving a game that he obviously loved to go fight for our country and ultimately pay that ultimate price. Now, if you're telling me that that guy doesn't deserve a special place in the Hall of Fame, then I'm going to argue with you for a long time because I think that he does. Chris Collinsworth making the argument that Pat Tillman should be in the Hall of Fame. I've got more, but I want to play just one more soundbite for our stations along the way. Eric Burns came on our podcast recently. Eric Burns knew Pat Tillman. Eric Burns looked up to Pat Tillman. He shared his thoughts on Pat Tillman. You know, everyone thinks that Pat Tillman became a hero because he was killed in action. His peers looked at him as a hero, as an icon, as a, as a guy that, that I want to model my, my actions after. I want to live my life like when he was alive. He didn't have to die to become this just iconic person. He was it when he, when he lived. But I'd be lying if I say that, like, all this that I do in my life, I, I think I constantly think about what would Pat do. I do the signature thing at every one of the big races is, I'll cross with a number 40 Pat Tillman, Arizona Cardinal jersey. And so when I came in, I did home stretch here, and we had an NYPD escort, uh, and I got to raise that number 40 above my head. There's, there's, there's nothing like it. It's true. I've done this a long time. I don't ever – I don't know of any athlete I've ever spoken to that was quite like Pat Tillman. I don't really know anybody quite like Pat Tillman. And that's not to say that those who serve – have not given up as much or more than he did. And I want to thank everybody for their service. Everybody. Everybody, period. It doesn't mean the dedication, the sacrifice, or commitment is any less if you didn't play in the NFL. But I just want to acknowledge how different an athlete and person that Pat Tillman was. How much I admire him for what he stood for, what he did. And even a guy like Eric Burns, for him to say, I frequently think to myself, what would Pat do? Says a lot. 15 years ago, he was killed. R.I.P. Pat. Pierre McGuire. Pierre, it is so good to have you back in the jungle. How are you? Oh, it's awesome to visit with you, Jim. I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Pierre, one of my favorite traditions at this time of year is not just to talk hockey with you, but to talk travel. So where have you been in the past week and where are you going this week? Uh, I've been in Columbus, I've been in Tampa, I've been in Washington, I've been in Raleigh, I've been in Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm in Raleigh tonight, and if uh, the Washington Capitals win, I will be in San Jose tomorrow night for Game 7. 
If the Capitals don't win, I'll be in Washington, D.C. So everything kind of fluid right now, Jim, to be honest. You are a machine, and you nailed it like I knew you would. All right, so why don't we talk about the Capitals, Pierre? They beat Carolina 6-0 on Saturday. They take a 3-2 series lead. What do you make of how they played on Saturday, and then how much does that impact tonight? It was the best game they played in the series by far. They weren't particularly good through the first four games of the series, and you got to give some credit to Carolina, who was physical, who was smart. They had a solid game plan. They did their best to take Alexander Ovechkin and Nick Backstrom and Tommy Wilson out of the series. Uh, unfortunately, that's almost impossible for any team. And uh, Washington on Saturday night showed just how great they are. They showed championship pedigree on Saturday night, Jim. That's why they dominated Carolina, who's kind of new to the party and, and really inexperienced. Uh, I would think this would be a really tall order for Carolina to win game six. But if they do win, Jim, and force a seven, it's not just because of what's going on the ice. It's because of what's going on away from the ice with their fans. Their fa- this is the loudest building in the NHL right now down in Raleigh. Mm. Pierre McGuire joining us. So in terms of their championship pedigree, how does this year's Capitals team compare to the one that won the Stanley Cup last year? They're not as deep on defense, and part of the problem is Michael Kempney's injury. He got hurt uh, late in the season against the Tampa Bay Lightning. He won't be back, and obviously – uh, in game four, they lost T.J. Oshie to a fractured clavicle. He had surgery on Sunday morning, uh, and he won't be back at all for the playoffs. So they're not nearly as deep as they were a year ago. Uh, but what they have is they've got tremendous leadership because they have won before, Jim. So that's why I alluded to the championship pedigree. So Alexander Ovechkin, Nick Batscrim, Kenny Kuznetsov, Lars Eller, uh, Johnny Carlson, these guys have won. They've been through it. They understand the torture test that the Stanley Cup playoffs are. And I think they're prepared for that, uh, even though they obviously lost two major players uh, over the last month and a bit. Pierre McGuire joins us once again. So, Pierre, go back to Game 3 when Alex Ovechkin and Andrei Stavechnikov got into it. What did you think when that fight started and then when Ovechkin dropped him the way he did? Uh, I had no problem with it. When you sign up to be in the National Hockey League, whether you're 18 or whether you're 35, they don't check your birth certificate. Everybody's on equal footing. Um, they'd been jousting since game number one. Uh, they also jousted during the regular season, so it's not something that was a foreign concept to either player. Uh, I think both guys mutually uh, agreed to fight. Uh, as soon as Ovechkin got him with the right hand on the button, uh, I don't know if you heard my call, but I was telling the trainer for Carolina, you better get out there because I don't think anybody – I was you know, maybe 15 or 20 feet away from it. I don't think people realize just the impact. It sounded like a hammer hitting wood when Ovechkin got him on the button. And uh, so eventually, obviously, Sveshnikov was taken off. And he's actually been skating, Jim, and practicing with a full face shield. I think he's highly doubtful to play tonight in game six. But who knows? It's the playoffs. Pierre McGuire, my guest. Yeah, who knows? And I did hear your call. And I, you were there. You saw that. I mean, he was out before he hit the ice. That was really something. Pierre McGuire joining us. All right, so we, as we move on, it – the Islanders swept the Penguins, and now they're advancing to the second round of the playoffs for the second time here in 26 years. How impressed have you been with the way they handled their business so far? Phenomenal. It's all about organizational standards, Jim. And what happened was when Lou Lamorello became the president and general manager of that team, you knew right away there was no more messing around. You knew who the boss was. He went out and hired a Stanley Cup winning coach and a great coach in Barry Trotz. They implemented a system that would best insulate their goaltending position and their defense. They're really difficult to play against in their own zone. They had guys that have really elevated during the course of the year. Josh Bailey's one of them. Uh, Jordan Eberle's another one of them. Anders Lee kind of had a so-so year, but in the playoffs, he's really elevated. Their defense has become 
rock solid good. Um, they've got a great reclamation story in Robin Leonard and Gold. He's battled all kinds of uh, demons away from the ice. So quite frankly, um, they're an amazing story, but it comes down to a simple thing, Jim, that every pro sports team can implement, organizational standards. They have high standards, and they play at a high level because of it. Pierre Maguire joins us. All right, so as long as we're talking about first-round sweeps, Peter, what did John Tortorella and Columbus figure out about the lightning that nobody else could crack in the regular season? What a great question. So it goes back to the last time they played in the regular season. I happened to do the game. Tampa Bay won in Columbus 5-1. to one. Jim, it was unbelievable. I was there. But the shots on goal were 40-20 to 20 in favor of Columbus. So they knew that they could dent their defense, and they knew they could attack with pace. So I did every game in that series. And here, here's the one deal. Um, in game number one, Columbus was down 3 nothing after one period, and John Tortorella stuck with his goaltender, Sergei Bobrovsky. That was number one. A smart thing for him to do. Bobrovsky was great the rest of the series. Second thing, he empowered his defense to get offensive. So if you look at Seth Jones, if you look at Zach Lorensky, and you look at David Savard, those guys were major forces because of John Tortorella turning them loose from defense to offense. The third thing that he did, he changed all his right wingers. Cam Atkinson played on a different line. Josh Anderson played on a different line. Uh, and it made a big difference in terms of what they were doing offensively in the matchups for Tampa. And then the third thing, that, or fourth thing that I thought they did so well, they got super aggressive, Jim, on the forecheck. And that frustrated Tampa. Tampa had not been forechecked like that the entire season, and they didn't know how to deal with it. Pierre McGuire joining us. All right, Pierre, listen, the NHL postseason to me is unlike any other postseason in sports. Literally anything can happen. But when you look at this season, Calgary lost 5-1 to Colorado in Game 5, meaning they're going to pack their bags after the first round. So what's it say that the top seed in the East and West are both done in the first round and that they want to combine one game between them? Well, it's a great question. It's a fair question. So here's my theory on it, Jim. Um, we have a, have had a salary cap in the NHL since 2005-06, that season. The first year of the salary cap era, the Carolina Hurricanes actually won the Stanley Cup. But since then, um, we've only had one expansion. We've only had one expansion in 20 years. So the talent bucket's full around the league. Ever since the 2003 entry draft, we've had amazingly good drafts. We really haven't had any poor drafts. So more and more talent is coming into the league. And because of the cap, the balance of power is getting equalized more and more and more. So that's why the parity in the league is just awesome. It's overwhelming. And, you know, people say, oh, it's an easy league to make the playoffs. And because 16 out of 31 teams make the playoffs, no, it's a really difficult league to make the playoffs. And it's unbelievably difficult. We're talking to Pierre McGuire. All right, so Pierre, The Athletic recently did a piece on you, but not as a broadcaster, but on you as a father, your daughter Justine is going to be a freshman at Dartmouth where she's going to row. Your son Ryan is playing hockey at Belmont Hill. How proud of you are, or how proud are you of both of them as athletes and as people? Oh my gosh, uh, I'm so grateful and blessed that they're uh, into sports, number one. Number two, the commitment level um, for all kids that are athletes is phenomenal, but to see um, the commitment level of my daughter in particular and, and the rowing community is awesome. I was just in San Diego, Jim. I should have looked you up at the San Diego Classic watching that uh, boat race or the regatta. And it's an amazing event. The people in San Diego do such a good job. Um, I'm really proud of them. Obviously, as a father, but I can't thank my wife enough because I'm, I'm away a lot, as you know. And uh, my wife is a superhero in our house, so I'm really, really grateful for everything that uh, 
she does with our children. It's a phenomenal story. No, I get that. Also, one of the things he said in the piece was, quote, as a father, one thing when I was younger in my career broadcasting, I would get too aggressive in terms of analysis with certain things. Now as I watch young players grow up, these kids need time to season. You have to give them time and be more patient. That's helped me being a parent, end quote. So how much of being a parent impacted the way you approach broadcasting, and how much has broadcasting impacted the way you approach parenting? Oh, wow, what a good question. Convoluted, but very fair. Um, I think I've learned to be more patient um, in broadcasting. I think I've learned to be more fair. Sometimes your emotions get the best of you when you're broadcasting. You get caught up in the heat of the moment, especially where I work. You're down low between the benches. You're in the middle of the fray. You're surrounded by 20,000 people, and it's it's crazy sometimes. But I think you learn to be more subtle. You take more time to evaluate decisions. You don't have a ton of time because it's hockey, and it goes really fast. But I think the number one thing when you're doing this, and I've learned it over you know 20 to 21 years now as a broadcaster, you learn to be more fair. You give the guy some time, more times than not the benefit of the doubt uh, on a mistake. So I'll give you an example. The other night, uh, Dougie Hamilton was in a situation of foot race, a defenseman for Caroline against Alexander Ovechkin. And he knew Ovechkin was coming for him. And if this would have been 15 years ago, I probably would have eviscerated Dougie Hamilton because he bailed out on the play. But rather, I just let the pictures do the talking. I said, he basically bailed out of that play. Rather than making it personal, I just let the play describe itself and people at home can make their own decision. I want to talk about a new sponsor and a new invention that I had not seen before. It is the tweener button, and the sponsor is my guy, Johnny O. Johnny O invented and patented the tweener button. The tweener button is a hidden button between the second and third button, which is featured on all Johnny O shirts. The tweener button is the first patented button to make sure that you're not too buttoned up or too unbuttoned. What it does is it solves the age-old second button dilemma. Should you button one button or should you button two? Every Johnny O'Shirt comes with the patented tweener button, so you're always going to look just right. It is a total game changer. I love this product. I love that innovation. And right now, you can use the promo code ROAM and get 20% off your first order at johnny-o.com at checkout. That's through May 30th. That's 20% off the regular price button-ups, which come in a range of fabrics and patterns and styles. And shipping is free for orders over $85. Again, that's johnny-o.com, promo code Rome, and get 20% off your first order. Free shipping on orders over 85 bucks. Again, johnny-o.com for your tweener shirt at 20% off. And check out the wide selection of shirts and other products ranging from polos to shorts, pants, swim, and more. I love this company and the product. johnny-o.com. The Yankees won 100 games last year. They are the most historic franchise in American sports. But they're in the midst of a truly historic injury situation. I mean, it's bad. I've never seen anything like it in baseball. Aaron Judge goes out with an oblique injury, making him the 13th Yankee to go on the list this season. Let me run this all down. Because, again, I've never seen anything like this. Giancarlo Stanton, left biceps. Aaron Hicks, back. Gary Sanchez, calf. Miguel Andujar, right shoulder. Greg Bird, left foot. Troy Tulowitzki, left calf. Luis Severino, lat. list goes on and on and on. I mean, seriously, which mirrors did they all break? Which ladders did they run under? Which sidewalk cracks did they step on? I have never seen a team with such hideous luck and karma. They haven't had a few injuries. They've had all the injuries. 
if there is a body part, the Yankees have had a player who has torn it or ripped it or injured it. And they're just about ready to break out and take it from common muscle ailments to bizarre medical conditions. At this point, I'm half expecting to see Ben Heller out with like swamp foot or Jordan Montgomery with trench mouth. And they both actually have Tommy John. And so does Didi Gregorius. I'm pretty sure we're a day or two away, though, from somebody coming up with rickets or scurvy. Oh, and Jacoby Ellsbury has not played since 2017, and it doesn't look like he'll be playing anytime soon. This is like the worst game of Oregon Trail ever. And for those of you who are saying it's the Yankees, they can just spend their way out of this, they can't. I mean, what are you going to do? Buy an entire new baseball team? With all the injuries yesterday, here's what their starting lineup looked like. DJ LeMayu, Luke Voigt, Brett Gardner, Clint Frazier, Mike Kluzinski, Ted Stone, Mike Ford, Austin Romine, Tyler Wade, and James Paxton. I mean, how anonymous is that crew? So anonymous that I just inserted two fake names, and you probably didn't even notice. I mean, seriously, is that a lineup for the Major League New York Yankees or the single-A Staten Island Yankees? Did somebody slip a Charleston River Dogs batting order into Aaron Boone's hand before the game? That reads like a lineup from a split squad game in spring training. But that was an actual lineup for the actual New York Yankees in an actual Major League game against the Kansas City Royals. And even more amazing than the fact that those seven guys and the two made-up guys were seeing action in a major league game was the fact that the Yankees won that major league game. James Paxton went six shutout innings. The bullpen did its best to blow that game and give that lead back to the Royals. But then Austin Romine did what he does. And if you weren't familiar with what he does, that's fine. He hasn't had a lot of chances to do much of anything. But in the bottom of the eighth, he did this. 2-1. Ground ball, through for a base hit. Romine picks his team up with an RBI single. Talkman scores 6-6. Then in the bottom of the 10th, with runners on second and third, and one man out, Austin Romine did even more Austin Romine things. That'll get it done. Deep drive, right center, going back. Hamilton, it's over his head. And the Yankees win. A walk-off single for That's amazing. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that that's the greatest win in Yankee history because it's not. But that is one of the most absurd lineups in Yankee history. And the fact that they won is incredible. Normally, I would say that the Yankees being only one game over 500 at this point of the season, after they won triple digits last year, is a terrible start. But considering who they can play and who they can't play, it's pretty damn amazing. And yes, the bullpen could help everybody out by not blowing five-run leads. But those guys have to be in shock when they look around and see some of the guys who are wearing pinstripes next to them. What I'm saying is, the Yankees being one game over 500 with this crew makes the Red Sox being four games under with their group look horrible. Ball game over. Yankees win. The Yankees win. Pretty amazing that they're game over. Tom Haberstroh is my guest. Tom, it's great to have you back. How are you? Jim, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Really good to have you, Tom. Thanks so much. Just over a week into the NBA playoffs. So, generally speaking, what do you make of what you've seen so far? What has jumped out to you the most? 
it's got to be the Portland Trailblazers just smacking OKC in the first round. Right now, it's a 3-1 series. And, man, this could be another first-round exit for Russell Westbrook, third year in a row without Kevin Durant. And, you know, it's it's really it's tough for OKC fans to watch because this is their guy. This is the guy that they uh, believe in after KD left them uh, at the altar in 2016 and went to the Warriors. And, unfortunately, the game has changed and it's really hard to win in today's NBA when you don't have shooting. When you're a superstar, Russell Westbrook can't shoot from three reliably or his mid-range jumper isn't hot. Um, you can't win in today's NBA. And you're seeing with Damian Lillard, a guy who is, has ice in his veins, a guy who is taking three-pointers and making three-pointers from deep. Uh, he is six of nine, Jim, six of nine from 28 feet or beyond in this series, which is just absurd. And it speaks to, you know, this is the game now for Steph Curry, for Trey Young, who had an amazing rookie campaign. These point guards with range are the new NBA. And Russell Westbrook right now is shooting 32% in the half court and isn't getting anything going because in, in a lot of ways, his jumper isn't working and the rest of the Thunder can't hit shots. And it's really difficult for OKC fans to watch Russell Westbrook struggle because I don't know where they go from here. Tom Haversgrove joining us. Extremely well said. I mean, that was supposed to be the battle of that series. And if, in fact, that series comes down to that battle, then Damian is winning that thing going away. I mean, you've touched on this, Tom, but, like, what do you make of how that thing played out, including Russ going with the rock the baby gesture? What do you make of that one-on-one battle between the two of those guys? You know, it's I love the intensity. I love the rivalry. We don't have enough of this, Jim, in the NBA, is the one-on-one rivalries. And I think... It's great emotion. It's great theater. Um, but, man, Damian Lillard is not a guy you want to mess with. And, yes, it, uh, in, in Game 3, he didn't win that one. But it, it was just uh, an incredible third-quarter performance again last night. And it's just Russell Westbrook is a fiery guy. Uh, the problem is he's not a lockdown defender. He gets really, um, you know, he gets really emotional in these games when his back is against the wall. But he's just not efficient. And in the last two seasons – in the postseasons, when his back is against the wall in an elimination game, here's his shot totals. 39 last year, 43, and 34. Those are his shots per game in elimination game. He just takes these things really personally and tries to carry the team on the back. But the problem is he's just not efficient. Damian Lillard is a Steph Curry light in the sense that he takes these really long three-pointers that make him impossible to guard. And he does it quietly. Uh, and he's a great shooter, one of the most efficient shooters in the league. And Russell Westbrook just tries to shoot his way out of these problems. And unfortunately, over the last few years, he racks up so many shots. Uh, and it's got to be tough to play with because he's not efficient. He's not making a lot of those buckets. And over the last three years, again, or the last two years, in elimination games, 17 of 39, 18 of 43, 15 of 34. It's just not efficient basketball, and it's hard to watch sometimes because you know how much Russell Westbrook cares. It's just he doesn't have a reliable jumper to win these games. Tom Haverstrow joining us. You know, you mentioned Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant's obviously got a very different different challenge on his hands. This is no longer his issue, his problem. Do you think that maybe privately he looks back? And if he does, what do you think he thinks and sees when he watches Russ play without him? Well, I think a big reason why he left was because it's not just OKC's brand of basketball that seems very Russ-dominated, but 
you know, Steph Curry, when he when he allowed Kevin Durant to come to the team, it's not something that a lot of people would do, but the culture in Golden State is led by Steph Curry. Um, I've always believed that he is the face of the franchise. It is, quote-unquote, his team, not in a, you know, a, a, a trope sense um, that you might see on various sports talk radio stations where it's just like, hey, it's his team. No, I just think the the culture in Golden State is set by Stephen Curry and the fact that his culture is, hey, I want to win basketball games. I don't care if it's me taking 40 shots or me, you know, setting screens. I want to win. And Kevin Durant's going to be a part of that. I'm cool with that. And it, it feeds off of Draymond Green. It feeds off of Andre Iguodala. Those guys are big culture guys too, selfless, uh, team-first distributors. And I think Kevin Durant was really uh, attracted to that. And I think – the, the trick here with Golden State and with Kevin Durant and Steph Curry is how much do you want to you know have Kevin Durant be the facilitator because at the second half of the season, this guy was facilitating like a point guard. He was incredible. He was averaging over six assists a game, and you want to say, like, Kevin Durant, that's amazing. That's great that you added that to his game. But I also think now we've gone too far, and I, I love seeing the Kevin Durant that we saw bounce back and just shoot over the top of Patrick Beverly because no one can do that better than Kevin Durant. And I love, I love him as you know distributing, but I want to see him be more aggressive there because that is such an advantage over a guy like Patrick Beverly. So I know he loves the culture there at Golden State and that it's a team-first thing with Steph Curry, but, man – Sometimes I just want to see Kevin Durant shoot because other than, uh, you know, unlike Russell Westbrook, it is a very efficient shot for Kevin Durant to take a guarded jumper. He is a national NBA insider for NBC Sports. Tom Haberstroh breaking it down for us. One more thought about Golden State. So if you're talking culture, you ultimately talk about chemistry. And Tom, when Golden State let Game 2 get away from them and then they came back to win both games in L.A., you know, it seems like every time they lose, there's some referendum on the Warriors in general, often on their chemistry. Like, what do you make of where their chemistry is right now compared to years past? Well, as you know, it's really hard to three-peat. I covered the Miami Heat in their three-peat quest, and it was a lot of just really grinded out, um, lifeless, joyless basketball. It was hard. Dwayne Wade's knee was, was blowing up, and it was, it was difficult. You know, um, He was in and out of the lineups. LeBron James was not happy about that. Um, it was just uh, culturally, in the locker room, it's difficult. You get on each other, you're tired of each other, and it's hard to keep focus. It's hard to, um, you know, th- these guys play 100, 100 games a year together, and that's what people don't realize. It is a grind. It's not an excuse to say that they, they put their bodies through the grinder. And so that, that kind of manifests itself just in the locker room too, and it's really hard um, to, to keep that lightness. I mean, Steve Kerr, when I've talked to him over the years, it's almost like when a guy gets injured or a guy gets uh, hurt, it, it's, it's, it stinks. But he also knows that it, it's a motivating factor. The adversity is something they, they thrive off of. And I think with DeMarcus Cousins being injured and coming to the team and being injured, I think it does kind of shake things up for them, and it's been such a grind for them. Not as much joy over the years, 
but I think you're seeing it now. They're as good as any team uh, when they're locked in. They just need to continue being locked in. Tom Haverstroh joining us. All right, so not that I'm just going to naturally assume that Golden State's going to advance or naturally assume that the Rockets are going to advance. I'm just going to naturally assume that they're going to advance. Just given that for a minute, given the fact that there's been a trend in recent years of James Harden wearing down in the postseason and Chris Paul wearing down and ultimately getting injured in the playoffs, how significant is it if these two do meet up in the next round that they're going to meet up in the second round instead of the conference finals? You know, ESPN's Amin El Hassan put me on this, and I fully believe it, is that it's great for Houston to be on that side of the bracket with Golden State because they need to be there at their, at their best, at their healthiest, with their gas tank as full as possible going against the Warriors. And I think going against them on the opposite side of the bracket and having to play them in the Western Conference Finals actually works to their detriment. Um, and I think it's going to be an amazing series. But you're seeing you know, a little bit of the stuff that I wrote about last year, which is after game one and when teams can, can kind of scout uh, James Harden and try to wear him down, he starts to lose his effectiveness. And in the last game, he was 3 of 20 from the floor, uh, not his efficient self. And I think that's something that Houston has to figure out is how do they keep his energy levels high and how do they make sure that he doesn't get off to another slow start um, you know, in, last, in the last game. And I think James Harden is incredible, but his conditioning is going to be number one and same with Chris Paul. I know that the Golden State Warriors are just chomping at the bit to, to see you know, if they can run them out of the gym in this next, in next, this next series. Tom Haverstrow joining us for a few more moments. And Tom, one thought about Ben Simmons, and going back to what you said about Russ Westbrook, and I'm not comparing the two of them, but you got to be able to shoot it, right? So Simmons did not have a great game one in the series against Brooklyn, then he came back with a triple-double in game two, and then that 31-point, nine-assist performance in game three without Joel Embiid. Of course, the rap on him has been his jumper. So ultimately, where does this leave him? Like, can this guy be a potential future league MVP if he doesn't legitimately shoot a three-pointer? Or can you surround him with enough shooters then it makes him less of a vulnerability what about his game and what he has to develop going forward yeah I think it's a great comp when you have Russell Westbrook who isn't surrounded by shooting you know they have Steven Adams who's just a beast in the paint but he doesn't have a jumper and then Nerlens Noel the same thing with the with their center spot they just don't have enough shooting around him but the the Sixers have surrounded Ben Simmons with shooting even Boban Marjanovic has a good jumper and can space the floor a little bit, even though he can dunk without jumping. And I wrote about it for NBCSports.com this week, is you know Ben Simmons can be a future MVP in the same sense that Giannis Antetokounmpo without a jumper has done the same thing, ascended to be an MVP, because they're surrounded by shooters in today's pace and space in NBA. It's imperative for OKC to surround Russell Westbrook with shooters in the same way that Ben Simmons thrives when he has Tobias Harris, J.J. Redick, Jimmy Butler, and even Joel Embiid has a really good jumper. So I think that's important. Ben Simmons in space, in transition, he's shooting 65% in this series, and a lot of it is because of all the spacing they acquired at the trade deadline, and I think they're going to really benefit going forward with all that shooting he is an NBC Sports NBA insider Tom one last thought what about the Lakers and what do they do with the front office do you think they go outside their family outside of their normal their normal sense of comfort their comfort zone and take that big swing and even if they do will somebody worthy of that want to take that job where do they go what do they do you know I I'm hearing that they're not going to do anything that they're not going to fill a Magic Johnson spot they're actually just going to go forward with Rob Palenka uh, at the, the GM, uh, and I think that's a mistake. I think they're drinking their own Kool-Aid and have been for the last several years in, in Lakerland, 
they're hiring their own people without looking for the best in in breed around the NBA. And I think it's a really big mistake. Uh, nepotism, it's it's cronyism, it's all the worst stuff that you have in management when you hire, you know, Byron Scott to be the head coach for Kobe Bryant because he's a former Laker. You hire Luke Walton, former Laker. You hire uh, you know, Rob Palenka, Kobe Bryant's longtime agent as your GM. You hire the president is Magic Johnson. Um, you know, one of Jeannie Buss's advisors is Kurt Rambis's wife. And I just think there's a lot of nepotism and a lot of cronyism, and they're just drinking their own Kool-Aid. And I really think David Griffin would have been a great person to hire in that position as president. But New Orleans Pelicans already hired him. I just don't know if people around the league are going to take them seriously if they don't continue to drink the Lakerland Kool-Aid and believe that they're exceptional and they're just going to win because they're going to out-Laker everybody. It hasn't worked, and I don't think it will work going forward unless they change their culture. I was going to say, I agree with you. David Griffin would have been a great hire. Like, you know how it is, Tom, and you know everybody likes Jeannie Buss. Everybody respects Jeannie Buss's intellect. But is can she change fundamentally? Would she ever change, do you think? I don't it's hard to see it um, because you would think that, okay, the way that magic went out, Jim, you'd think that it'd be a wake up call, but in fact, they're just going to continue with the status quo. It looks like, and they're interviewing coaches before they hire a president, right? You know, I mean, it's, you're putting the cart before the horse there. And I really think that's going to uh, be an issue going forward is they need to have an independent voice who is going to be able to talk to Jeannie seriously without having to, you know, placate the Laker brand. And I think that's the big mistake is they're putting the Lakers uh, mystique ahead of just smart business sense. There is no mystique. There is no aura at this point. Tom Haverstrow is an NBC Sports NBA insider. He is all over their platform. He's the creator of the ALS Pepper Challenge. Good friend of the program. Tom, really well done. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate the support. Jamie and Green Bay tweets. Watching on CBS Sports today. Did Hawk Finally call pest control to remove that squirrel on his upper lip. Dude, you did take that thing down. Sort of. All right, let's uh, go ahead and, and bring Hawk to the show. All right, bro. So you kind of tightened up your game. You kind of tightened up your face. Before, you looked like a porn star, and now you look like a psycho killer. What's up? Uh, just, my wife had had enough of it. She said it's run its course. Get rid of it. And... I did. She had her family coming over to our house yesterday, so I decided to tighten everything up, got a haircut, took down the stash, and that's that's. there's not much of a story to it. But I've been told by many people that no one looks weirder than me after shaving, and I've got that all day from the crew today. You know what? I didn't even look at you. I didn't even know until they pointed this out, and now I'm sorry that I do know they're right. You look weird, dude. Thank you. You look weird. Uh, is the wife happy at least? Happy wife, happy life? Is she happy? She's very happy, yes. Well, did she tell you to take it down or did she tell you to take it off? Um, she just said, I don't really want to get anywhere near you with that stash anymore. I'm kind of sick of it. Um, our kids don't really like the way facial hair feels either. So get rid of your stash, please. And your response was what? I just did what she said finally for the first time in my life. I just listened. Was there any pushback at all? None. I had gotten, I, I had grown kind of sick of it as well. Do we all had for a long, long time. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm going to, uh, I don't know, just kind of keep it off for a little bit and, and look like a normal person for a little bit. I got one question for you, Adam. What the hell's wrong with you, dude? You're, you're just not right. Like, when you got here, you start off kind of right, but you're not right. You're spiraling. Dude, what's your deal? What's next? What's next? Every day, every day it's something with you, Hawk. And, and 
Understand that you have not been singled out. There have been people in this job before you who never, ever took this abuse. This is a you thing. This is not a me thing. I have uh, lots of content, Hawk. I don't need you for content. No, I agree. What is your deal? I'm asking you. What is your problem? I mean, honestly, I was just sitting here without a mustache, and then uh, all of a sudden... Keith brought in an email that commented on the lack of a mustache, and here we are. So I, I wasn't trying to draw attention to myself. I was actually trying to blend in. Yeah, because oh, yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's good, bro. That was really good. That, that was really awesome. I was not trying to draw attention to myself. Bro, you roll out of the rack every single morning. Take your headphones off. I don't need you. You roll out of the rack every single morning thinking of ways to call attention to yourself. He just said, I'm just trying to blend in. I'm just trying to blend in. I, I would rather nobody ever look at me, nobody ever think about me, nobody ever talk about me. Sign the guy who got an ink, a tat of a cat on himself. I'm just trying to blend in. Sign the guy who grew a ridiculous porn stash. Sign the guy who's, who decided, I think I'll run a marathon and not train for it. I'm just trying to blend in. Boy, you are something else, Hawk. Don't ever change. Why should we have to go to class if we came here to play football? We ain't come to play school. Classes are pointless. All right, so we're talking about Ohio State quarterbacks, great Ohio State quarterbacks. Dwayne Haskins, where would you take him? How do you think he projects? I love his attitude. one 636 Banging that telephone number in the hopes that somebody who can make the show better will actually call that phone number. NHL playoffs, Pierre Maguire, top of hour number two. Tom Haberstroh in hour number three. Hawks stash. A topic on the program once again. It's no longer the porn stash. Now it's just the psycho killer stash. You went from looking like a porn star to a murderer. Hypothetical. Good night now! How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.